Welcome, guys and gals, to the Man Talks show. I'm Connor Beaton, the host and founder of Man Talks. This podcast brings together some of the best thought leaders, teachers, and extraordinary individuals to help teach and mentor you on how to be a top performer in life, love, and business. Joining me today is Dr. Pat Davidson, PhD. He is an exercise physiologist, strength and conditioning coach, author, consultant, and traveling lecturer. Pat started out in the fitness world as an athlete who was looking to find any training and nutritional tool possible to make him the best he could possibly be in sports. This passion for training knowledge ultimately led him to pursuing a master's degree in science, in strength and conditioning specifically, and a PhD in exercise physiology, which I didn't even know was a real thing until him and I talked about it before this episode. Uh, So he's actually worked as a professor of exercise science at Springfield College and Brooklyn College, along with being the director of continuing education and training methodology at peak performance in New York City. Now, Pat was actually referred to me as a through through a friend uh, who had worked with Pat and still does work with Pat uh, over the past year or so. And and through working with Pat, he's his own body and mindset have fundamentally changed and evolved uh, through the work that they have done together. So he came highly recommended. And this podcast, we are going to talk about a ton of stuff. It's longer than normal. We really go the distance. We start off talking a little bit about uh, Pat's own personal life, his journey to to excellence in the field that he's in, the PhD. Uh, we talk about his addiction and a little bit of his background that, that he grew up with uh, as a young adult. And uh, we progress from there through a few different topics. We actually Uh, touch on the training industry a little bit. So we talk about the physical health industry. Uh, We talk about body image, which uh, is actually a topic that we've never talked about on here, but we actually talk about men and body image and how a lot of guys actually struggle with that body image. And it's one of the reasons why, you know, so many men either struggle to maintain a routine because they're not seeing the results that they want uh, or why they're working out in the first place and why they can easily get frustrated because they're not seeing the ideal results. They don't look like the guy on the front of men, men's magazine. Uh, but we also talk about some really interesting things like resiliency and variability and why variability is so important for us to develop that sense of resiliency in any way, shape, or form uh, in our life. Uh, we also talk about the difference between stupid and efficient or smart exercise. And Pat kind of lays out some of the core foundational pieces of what we need to know for effective exercise. Uh, and and we dive into so you know a few different other things. It really is an incredible conversation, and we touch on a few different things along the way. He's incredibly, incredibly well-read and well-spoken when it comes to the topic of health and exercise. We don't really focus too, too much on nutrition in this episode specifically. Uh, we talk more about the mindset, more about the physical side of things. Um, not so much about like the the, the mechanics of exercises, uh, but more about what you really need to know around the the, the mentality. Uh, and we talk on on the the fitness industry itself and how social media has sort of uh, skewed some of these areas 
and uh, and 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 turn some of these people that maybe aren't necessarily real personal trainers into you know phenomenons that have hundreds of thousands of followers. So. Uh, so we get into a few different subjects. So it's definitely interesting. So no matter what, no matter whether you are wanting to improve your mindset, no matter if you're wanting to improve your physical exercise, uh, or if you just wanted to get started, no matter where you're at in your journey, when it comes to physical exercise and your body image, this episode is crucial. It's a game changer. And I learned a lot through my conversation with Pat. So just before I dive in, quick reminder to all the guys, head on over to the Man Talks community on Facebook. We have thousands of men from around the world that are part of that community with some great challenges going on right now. Uh, and, uh, and for anybody that wants to go deeper and work with me personally, you can either hit me up on through the website at Connor at Mantox.com, or if you're wanting to join the Alliance, which is an incredible, incredible program starting July 5th, you can check out uh, that, the Alliance on Mantox.com. So without any further delay or ado, please, please, please welcome Mr. or Dr. Pat Davidson. Well, Connor, thank you very much for having me, man. I really appreciate it and look forward to this conversation. Likewise, likewise. So this has been uh, a welcoming, a, a good friend of mine uh, introduced us. I did some research on your site. I was kind of blown away by some of the things that you talk about when it comes to exercise, movement, health, fitness, the, the whole gamut. You seem to be very well read uh, as well as just sort of backed up by uh, by good referrals, which is, I think, more and more as we move to the age of social media, word of mouth is always the, the sort of best referral. So um, so let's dive into the let's dive into the very first question. I always ask the same thing. Uh, so tell us a story about a defining moment in your life that made you who you are today. So, you know, for myself and and also for uh, a lot of family members um, that that are that I come from, like uh, substance abuse has been something that's that's really been uh, ever present. You know, like as a as a kid, like I. My mother, my mother had drug addiction problems. My father was never really part of my life. You know, he's, he's from what I know, he's just been kind of, you know, an alcoholic in and out of prison his entire life. But I don't, I haven't, I'm not aware of, of if he's alive or dead at this point in time. And for the most part, I was raised by my grandparents and, you know, they were always very much telling me like, Hey, listen, like you're, you're coming from Irish heritage. Like, uh, 100% Irish background. Like you got to understand, like alcohol has been something that's been a huge problem for your ancestors as far back as we can find or think or recall. So be aware of that going forward. You know, as a kid, like I, I dealt directly with my mother being, you know, kind of like times of sobriety, times of being completely off the wagon, like losing it. And as a you know, as a kid going into high school, that, that age, I got introduced to alcohol. I got introduced to drugs and I really had like no, no control over that. Like as soon as, you know, any kind of mind altering chemical hits my body, it's just like a incredibly powerful reaction that changes me completely into a different person. And, and I have no ability to hit an off switch, you know, and in many ways that sort of defines me as a person in general, like I'm either all in on something or just all out. And you know, for, for me, like I, you know, I got heavily involved with, with drugs and alcohol, uh, in my late teens and early twenties. And, you know, e even despite that, I was able to at least kind of like go to college to some degree 
uh, sort of in and out in the beginning, like failed out of the first college I went to, failed out of the second college I went to. Um, but I got my head on straight to a certain degree when I was about 20 and I got hooked up with a guy that, that coached uh, mixed martial arts in, in my hometown. And, and this was really almost before mixed martial arts had its name, you know, so we just did like he, he was trained in what he referred to as Kung Fu and wrestling in some ways. But in, in truth, it was really like the closest thing we have to modern mixed martial arts of like Thai fighting, kickboxing and uh, wrestling and, and Brazilian jiu-jitsu. That was a sport that I, I gravitated to because I, quite frankly, I needed structure. I needed discipline in my life. And I needed a purpose. And, uh, and this guy was able to provide that stuff to me. And, and his name is John Burke. And, uh, you know, I, I, I always try to make sure that I acknowledge the impact that this guy had on me because I really didn't have a father growing up. I didn't have uh, a model that I could base how to behave off of. And I was very fortunate to have this guy come into my life. And, and he really took me in. You know, I mean, he made me part of his family. You know, I had dinner at his house at, every day after we trained. You know, he, he could recognize in me what I needed. And I think in large part, he came from a troubled background. And, um, and he used the structure of training in martial arts to really give his life purpose and, and to find an understanding of who he was. And, and I, I'm just so fortunate that he really took me under his wing and, and gave me similar sorts of, of guidance, but he ultimately, uh, really helped me understand that, that I'm an addict, you know, and that I can't have a little bit when it comes to alcohol or drugs. Like there's just, it's, you know, one is too much and a thousand is, isn't enough is, is kind of like the, the saying with that. But he, um, he recognized when I was completely off the deep end and he didn't cast me away. You know, he took me in, he made sure that, that I knew that it really wasn't my fault. He allowed me to, to take in the idea that I could break a chain, you know, like break a, a repeating cycle of generations of abuse and self-destruction. And he was able to, to get me into recovery. He was able to put me on a track in terms of, of learning behavioral strategies to avoid problematic triggers. Um, and, and also to, to coach me at a very high level in, in mixed martial arts. So, you know, in, in under, working under him, I was able to get myself clean and sober. I was able to, you know, do professional fights in mixed martial arts, you know, compete in the, in the jujitsu circuits that go around the country and around the world. And he also basically pointed out to me like, Hey, you know, you're actually, you're a pretty smart guy. Like, you know, when you put your mind to something, you're pretty capable and competent. And he also pointed out to me that this one thing that seems so simplistic, but it, it's really made probably the biggest difference in my life in terms of advice that anyone's ever said to me. He said, listen, the kind of intensity that you bring to training, the kind of dedication that you bring, the perseverance that you bring to mixed martial arts. If you were to take that and aim it at other elements of your life, imagine what you could do. Imagine if you took that and aimed it at school, just how far you could go. And, you know, I actually, I respected him enough and I had enough belief in the message that he was giving me to do that. And, you know, he also pointed out like, you know, why, why don't you go to school 
for something related to exercise, fitness, or sports-based science. And again, it was kind of like a sort of obvious thing, but it hadn't really occurred to me. So I went back to school for uh, exercise-related degree. I, I got into a strength and conditioning master's program, and I took that mindset that he gave me, and I directed it full blast at that. And I was able to, you know, really just get top grades in every every class that I took, uh, just be able to excel. And I, I realized, you know, I'm like it's it's kind of funny. Like I I realized that I'm not stupid. I realized that I can read, synthesize information, and and ultimately create things with with my knowledge base. And you know, I had a professor who I, I really thought was an incredible person and. I asked her what she thought I should do next. And she said that I should consider getting a PhD in exercise physiology. And I went to the same school that she did. And I, I just kept pushing as hard as I possibly could. And I was able to get a PhD in exercise physiology. So really, um, you know, I was 23 by the time that I got sober. And I, I was, I had attempted suicide. I really was like at a point of a, an absolute bottom. And in, a six-year period of time, I was able to get a master's degree and a PhD and really like send myself on a trajectory in life that led me to be a professor at two different schools, um, have my own business now, and, um, and manage to, to be excelling in the fitness industry in New York City. So it's, it is, life is, is crazy, and I'm, I'm extremely grateful for, for the difficulties, uh, because I really think that the difficulties have defined me and, and I, I enjoy struggling through adversity and challenges. I think that that's my favorite part of life to tell you the truth. Yeah. I mean, it's so, it's so interesting to hear a little bit about your story and, and just hear the similarities, even, even with myself, I'm sitting here listening to your story and I'm hearing myself and you in terms of, you know, battling, with alcohol and drugs after high school, barely graduating high school, having to go back. Uh, I had to go back and, and do English and um, chemistry over again because I failed both of them uh, just so I could graduate high school. And and really struggling all the way through school, not really being like a good student, and then finding myself being aligned to a passion, to a purpose in university and all of a sudden having straight A's, you know, getting getting sort of, uh, my my quote unquote life together and starting to move in in one in one specific direction. So it, it's really incredible to hear your journey and, and some of the things that have come out of that. What if you could sort of condense your lesson from from addictions? And and I know it's an easy thing to do, but you know I think it's something that no matter who the person is that's out there listening to this podcast. Um, they, they probably know somebody that is, or has, or is going to suffer and struggle with addictions, whether that's themselves or a close family member or friend or, or whatever, whatever that may look like. So what, what wisdom can you condense from your struggle with, uh, with addiction? And, and then secondly, what would you say to people trying to support other people with addictions? Cause I think that that's an even bigger community of people that are out there trying to figure out like, what do I do with them? How do I help them? How do I serve them? And, and, uh, that, that is a big struggle that a lot of people, a lot of people face. And that's a, that's a great question. You know, number one, I would say that, you know, I'm super grateful that I'm an addict 
being an addict taught me a tremendous amount about how to acquire things in life that I want. Um, I, I don't think that there is a more goal-directed subset of the human population than addicts. You know, there's been plenty of days where I've woken up feeling as sick physically as you could possibly feel, as disgusted with myself as I possibly could. Uh, but then after kind of like lamenting in my own misery for maybe a couple of hours, having this goal in mind, which was to like, hey, can I get a bag of cocaine before the day is done? I have no money in my wallet. I have burned bridges last night, uh, but I need this thing. And I've, I don't think I ever didn't find a way to acquire what I wanted. You know, I sort of take that same mentality to most things that I do in life now. Like, that's impossible. There's no way that I can get fill in the blank. And then I remind myself, like, you know, you managed to get like hundreds of dollars worth of cocaine while waking up with no money and no job. How the hell did you pull that off? Because if there is a strong enough will, there is a way. So I, I think that usually junkies have an incredible drive or they've experienced an incredible drive that can be channeled towards something incredibly positive. If there's behavioral change implemented in that person's life and they're able to, you know, go about uh, becoming extremely self-aware uh, and redirecting themselves in some way, shape or form. So in my opinion, drug addicts, are people that we should not give up on. You know, I think that oftentimes there are people that have experienced significant trauma in their life at some point in time. And, and I think that just culturally, we don't speak enough about trauma. You know, I, I recently saw something, it's called the ACE scale. I don't remember exactly what it stands for, uh, but ACE, and it essentially gives you a score regarding the amount of childhood trauma that you experienced. And I think it's, it's, it's a one to 10 score that you can have on it. And I think that as soon as you hit a four and, and the higher the score, the kind of the worse, as soon as you hit a four, there's like a 5,000% increase that you're going to be a drug addict or an alcoholic. And like a bunch of other things kind of go along for the ride with that as well, like depression, suicide, even like STDs and other things like that. Like the list of, it's like the list of all bad things kind of goes along with it. But uh, you know, it sort of stuck out to me with the addiction component. But it's, it's a lot of times it's things that happen to you at a, at a very young age, between zero to five. And oftentimes what can happen with that is that from zero to five, you don't have a sophisticated enough language base. So you're not able to verbalize or explain to yourself what happened. It's, it's beyond, it's like very truly subconscious. So you can't necessarily define a lot of the things that, you're working yourself through. You know, I, I think that we're probably going to come up with much more sophisticated psychiatry and psychological treatment of these things as we're becoming more aware of how to work with issues that are beyond language because language is so profound. You know what I mean? If you have language and you can write things out and you can speak about it, there's, it's, it's, a, it's a strong tool to use. Unfortunately, if things preceded your language base, you don't know how to talk through those things. 
So, you know, there's, there's newer models in terms of uh, psychological treatment. There's things like EMDR, eye movement, dissociation, reprocessing, that seems to be incredibly powerful for getting to some of these things. Uh, there's advancements within the realm of like low dose psychedelics and MDMA that seem to be pretty, pretty powerful treatment tools that get at some of the, the, uh, neurochemistry that's capable of, of allowing people to work through trauma. But ultimately I think the common word with this stuff is trauma and people that have experienced trauma need to have belief. They need to have hope. They need to have love. And I think they also need purpose in their life. I, I think that uh, if you examine some of the Blue Zone stuff, and it's like social networks are critical, and and purpose is critical. And I think it goes to the essence of what it is to be human. You know, like modern world is is really bizarre, the environments that we've constructed. But we're, for the most part, animals. Homo sapien has existed for approximately 200,000 years, and hunter-gatherer ancestors have existed for 2 million years but we've lived in tribal communities and the purpose is pretty clear and the social network of existing with approximately 150 other individuals in your close group is something that we don't have anymore. That direct uh, social uh, engagement component. So I think that most of these things uh, addiction is, is an environmentally driven phenomenon and I think it's a mismatch of the authentic environments that we evolved from versus the modern artificial environments that we've constructed for ourselves. And I think that if we're able to, you know, we, we're, we're stuck in the world that we've created. Yeah. But if we can get at some of the neurochemistry that, that underlies these things and really accurately assess the problems and give the right medicine to people, there's no reason why... A lot of people that are experiencing a lot of pain and causing a lot of pain to those close to them can't completely reverse those things and become incredible members of our community. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting. So I, I hear, I think I hear a, a few things stand out about what you just said in terms of, you know, in terms of going through that addiction process. So really learning the value of community, really learning the value of purpose really being able to to integrate and understand how to heal through our own trauma. Uh, I think one of the biggest things that I see, you know, working and having worked with men for so long is that that really is the path of extraordinary men. Like if there was a path, if there really was a, a path for for men to greatness, it would be the path of healing. It would be the path of men being able to look at their own trauma look at, you know, the abuse or the abandonment of their father or their mother or who, you know, that the father figure or the mother figure in their life, whatever that looks like, and being able to heal through whatever that was that happened. Because what ends up happening more often than not is that we don't heal through that and we end up passing that along. And, you know, I think like I grew up in, in a abusive house, household for a while when I was a kid. And that was something that I never wanted to pass on. You know, and and kind of like what you were talking about, it's like the buck stops here. You know, like we can be the change that we want to see for our future generations. We have to choose that. And it's a ton of work. And you know, there's so much that goes into that. <laughs> but we can cognitively choose to seek out that path of healing. It also sounds like the social structures for addicts. And I know that 
part of the 12 part program. And I don't want to get too deep into this because I really do want to get on to, uh, to, to the exercise part of things and, and some other topics, but it does sound like the social constructs that we surround ourselves with are, are pretty imperative. What, what does that look like for you now, you know, on the other side of addiction and, and how are you more conscious of curating your, your own social circles? So I think for better or worse, we're all searching for our own tribes. And, you know, I think that that can be the best things in humanity and some of the worst things in humanity because it creates an us versus them mentality in many ways. But at the same time, like we're genetically set up to want to exist in a tribal setting. And for me, I've, you know, I think if, if you're set up, if you're the type of person we are going to talk to a a certain degree about dopamine. Um, There are those in our population that seem to require greater hits of dopamine or reward mechanisms or, you know, uh, confirmation, whatever, whatever that, that may be. And it just, that sets you up to be a little bit more of an extremist of a person Mm. in, in some way, shape or form. But you are, so I, I think that for me, I definitely fit that bill. And I usually seek out other extremist types. And I've just simply gone from, you know, the extreme dopamine hit of cocaine or crack or something like that to intense exercise. You know, I mean, that, that has been able to fill in this, this void for me. And what I've found is that, you know, when you get into the world of exercise and you find other people that work in that field, you get a lot of people that come from a similar background. There's a lot of addictive personalities that work in exercise. And, you know, I've, I've found, like, I've, I think I've cultivated in some ways my own tribe of, of people that work in my field. And, you know, my best friends work in the field that I do or nutrition or something like that. Most of these guys are, are some of the best and brightest in the, in the world of sports science or exercise or something. And, you know, for me, it's kind of like, it's, it's as crazy as it sounds like I, I, I write books, I put on presentations and I go to continuing education events as like the thing that I do, you know, almost every weekend of my year is kind of like filled with something. It drives my wife completely out of her mind. <laughs> but, uh, you know, like, I look at it as almost like when I'm doing a presentation, I don't have too many sports I can compete in anymore, you know, but I have these, these presentations or books that I can work towards these enormous projects. And I love the pursuit of that, you know, and, and I'm going to talk a bit about dopamine and hunting and how they're completely tied together, but I need a, a task that's larger than life that I can try to overcome and conquer. And, and those tasks nowadays tend to be, like I said, presentations and books and then doing presentations on those books. But when I do these things, it's like the presentation itself is almost like game day. Like the thing I've been working towards for a long time, put all this uh, effort into, and now I get to actually experiencing the end result of it. But it's like it brings all of the people I want to hang out with to the event. Or I'm going to this big event, this big continuing education thing, and I get to see all the other crazy people that are just as motivated to learn this stuff as I am. And I find that I usually just really like those people. And through those connections, it's like, and it's from that dopamine perspective of like reward, 
it's like this double, triple hitter because it helps me professionally. I meet people that I really like and I feel like I accomplished this major task that I have been really working for. And, and through that process, I've literally cultivated the tribe of people. Like I never thought I'd have good friends in my life. When I was younger, I couldn't fit in with anybody. I really wanted to. I was desperate. Like I, I was doing drugs because, hey, at least I can make some friends through this. But they're worst friends that you could possibly make. And, um, you know, I was just like, man, I'm just a weirdo. Like, I, you know, I'm, I'm a broken person. Like, I don't make sense. Nobody likes me. And I just kind of had to find, like, the other people that were on my version of the Island of Misfit Toys in some ways. And I, 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 those people just work in the field that I work in, oddly enough. It's, it seems to be a draw. I think if you can find your field, that you'll find your people in some ways, too. If, if, you know, I, maybe I'm an, an anomaly, but that's what I've found. No, I think, I think you're, you know, I think you're bang on. Like, I think there's a lot of, there's a lot of people that are out there searching for their tribe, you know, and like, I even think about the, the man talks community Facebook group that we have. It's just like 3,500 guys and they're, they're all there because they're all searching for something similar, right? They're, they're looking for like-minded individuals that they can uh, commune with, you know, and actually have conversations with about relevant topics about health and fitness and fatherhood and all these different things. And, and that seems to be, that seems to be the thing. And, and, and a lot of them have had in, in many ways, maybe not, I don't want to say like traumatic upbringings, but they haven't had it easy, right. From their perspective. And so what's brought them there is they see this as a, as a place that they can have those types of conversations. And I do see a lot of people that end up finding their community through their purpose, you know, whether it's whether it's through them finding their purpose and giving their time to something or it's them finding their purpose and then leading a cause. You know, like even even when I look at myself, my life purpose has come out of my rock bottom moment, you know, living in the back of a car for three weeks, contemplating, you know, taking taking my own life and and realizing that there had to be a better way. And then slowly taking steps towards that and realizing that so many other men were suffering. And I was like, oh shit, like there's a worthy cause that could be my life purpose. Cause if I can figure my stuff out, maybe I can help other men do the same thing. And all of a sudden out of that came this like beautiful, not in that moment. It wasn't like a, I think that sometimes we have this like perception that's going to be like a light bulb moment that all of a sudden, you know, like the gates of heaven are going to open up and that, you know, things are going to sing around us and the orchestra will play and we'll know exactly that this is our life purpose. But it really was an unfolding process for me. And the more people that I've talked to who have gone through experiences like you is that they they have these moments that sort of point them in a direction. It's more of an unfolding. And if we're present to that unfolding, we can find ourselves in a beautiful space. So let, let's just go a, a little bit further because I want to talk about, there's a lot that I want to talk about. And I definitely want to get us to, to exercise and movement. And it's one of the reasons why I really wanted to have you on the show. But But let's just take a next step into resiliency and talk about that because that seems to be a a bit of a, uh, a not a cheat code, but a cornerstone to the turn in your life. And so maybe if you could just unpack for us a little bit about how you define resiliency and the important things that that the listener might need to know about resiliency uh, from your perspective. Okay, great. I mean, super tough word to actually define. Yeah. And 
it's all, it's one of these ones that like, you know, the things in life that I appreciate are the things that are kind of at oblique angles or that are in the shade a little bit. <laughs> and, and I think that resiliency is one of those things. And I would say that the closest word that we have to resiliency is fitness and fitness is impossible to define as well, which leads people that work in exercise science to come up with other categories that attempt to quantify fitness. And, and if I'm teaching an undergraduate exercise science course, like some 101 type of course, I would say that fitness is the combination or the amalgamation of aerobic fitness, muscular strength, muscular endurance, flexibility, and body composition. And that generally speaking, when I have those things in some kind of semblance of a ratio with one another, that is a display of fitness. Because trying to explain the word fitness is like fitness for a shot putter is very different than fitness for a marathoner, so to speak. But overall, like prior to us inventing sports, because we had nothing better to do at a certain point, uh, we had to exist as a wild human. And I think that the wild human is the jack of all trades and the master of none, so to speak. And that what that really means is like, I, I think that I would do very poorly living as a wild human in the savannah. Like I've developed a few specific realms of fitness to a very high degree to be a, like a specialist or an expert in something like strength and force production is where I've taken things to a very far degree. But as soon as you begin to specialize in something, that ratio begins to tip. Like, you know, if I was to think about this from a visual perspective, maybe I would want some kind of a circle or something that has a nice spread to it as a shape versus Mount Everest at one point and the Marianas Trench at another point. So I, I, and you know, in thinking of myself, it's kind of like Mount Everest for strength and the Marianas Trench for something like flexibility. So when I'm thinking of like a, a wild human and, and wild humans are resilient, like we are probably the most resilient species that has ever lived, quite honestly. Like we live on all the continents. We live in every imaginable environment from tropical to mountains. There's no other animal. I think pigs come kind of close and birds are kind of close, but no other animal lives in the same diversity of environments as we do. Yeah, even even like the frozen tundra of Canada, <laughs> which which like if you have ever been to northern Canada is especially in the winter an incredibly hostile environment to live in. It, it's just it really seems like people shouldn't live there. And yet they do. It seems impossible. Yeah, like I've seen the show Wild Russia as well. And it's like, yeah. how could anybody live in these places? And and not only have we do we live there, we've lived in these places for a long time. Like before we had internal heating or cooling or things like that, like living outdoors in these places. So the the adaptability of the Homo sapien is remarkable. And you know, so where where does this ultimately lead us to in 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 this discussion, I would say that that fitness, like measurable fitness is probably the closest thing that we'll get scientifically to some kind of an answer because we need we need quantitative data yeah. for that. But I think that always there's another concept that underlies that that's more important. And, and to me, I think that the word variability 
is probably as good a word as you could possibly come up with in terms of if you can understand that, then you can begin to understand what's most essential in terms of what it, what it takes to be resilient. You know, where I begin my discussion with variability is to explain that that seems to be the strategy that life in general on this planet has taken to be able to survive. I always think of this visually. I think of it in terms of a, uh, some kind of a, a bell curve. And I would say that at the two tails of the curve, on the left cur- on the left tail, you would have rigidity, and on the right tail, you would have chaos. And um, in the middle, in the center of that bell curve, would be variability. Life has decided that it will not choose the path of rigidity. If it chose the path of rigidity, all of the life forms on this planet would be in- incredibly similar to one another. That's not a good option to go with if an apocalyptic type event were to happen, such as a meteor hitting the planet, because if it shifted the environment in one specific way and all the life was almost exactly like itself, that could potentially kill all of life. And, you know, that, that would obviously just end life as a, as, a, as a construct. If life was chaotic, then there would be no common thread that wove all of life together or no common denominator. Life emerged from one interaction at some point in Earth's history, and only one, it seems. And it led to life being carbon-based. Life is not based off of 12 other backbones. It's only carbon-based. So there is this, this thread that weaves all of life together. And that, but life from this one basis has diversified itself to an incredible extent. I mean, there's animals that are so bizarre looking that we can barely believe that they're here, but they are here and they serve some purpose. And what this allows for from the perspective of life as a whole is that this apocalyptic event, if it were to happen, only one form of life needs to make it. And the entirety of life can continue to survive on this planet in the aftermath. Um, So that seems to be the strategy life has come up with for it wants to be here. And it's trying its best to never not be here. But every individual form of life on a very microscopic basis seems to take the same strategy. And in, in all realms of, of what it is to be a being on this planet, and it's easy to look at humans, but from the perspective of our psychological existence, our social existence, our emotional existence, our physical existence, our cognitive existence, we all need variability. And the more that you lose that variability, the less you're able to function at your most optimal level. So, you know, in terms of just from a social perspective, it's fairly easy to imagine if I always behaved exactly the same, I wouldn't do that well in life. Like, you know, I need to talk differently in front of parents as I would to a police officer, as I would to my friends when we're hanging out and being in a really relaxed setting, as I would to my significant other. I need to be many different versions of myself so that I can really interact with a lot of different people in a lot of different settings. And I think, you know, my job is to be someone that guides people towards their best expression of their physicality. And, and I need to make sure that this is a person, you know, if I'm working with a, a very specific athlete, I probably need to sacrifice a degree of variability so that we can specialize and optimize one thing. But I do realize that there's cost to that. Like if, if I'm training a weightlifter, they might not have great feeling knees for the rest of their life after that. 
but they've decided that they want to be the best in the world at one specific task. And if you're going to do that, there are going to be consequences. But generally speaking, I need to ensure that people have the ability to move their joints through space in all of the ways that humans should be able to. And I need to ensure that this is a, a person that's capable of displaying enough strength and enough aerobic fitness and enough flexibility. Uh, otherwise, like if they don't if they don't reach this level of enough, then there's a there's a problem with fitness. But it's it's also this it's this balance with an, like fitness and variability. Like I said, if you're Mount Everest in aerobic fitness, but the Marianas Trench in strength, nature wouldn't view you as being respectable enough in some ways to continue to have you around. Like there's a, a huge hole that's missing from your overall presentation. And, uh, and, and ultimately, I look at physical training as identifying holes. And then the amount of work that I have you do in that realm to develop that quality is my interpretation of how much dirt I need to fill in that hole with so that there's not a problem. Got it. So resiliency plays, I mean, it sounds like resiliency plays a huge part in in our development, in our longevity, in our ability to to train in, in so many different ways, because in some ways it sounds like just if I'm to extract some of the essence of what you just said, is that we resiliency really comes down to us having a sense of variability, which I think actually goes against some of the things that that maybe we have been brought up to think. You know, when I, when I remember training through high school when I was playing, you know, semi-pro hockey and, and, and into, you know, in my early 20s, a lot of that was like me trying to have the same regimented workout day in and day out. And, and it didn't produce the results that I wanted. And, and looking back on that, I think in many ways, it didn't produce the results that I wanted because of that lack of variability. I was just doing the same thing over and over and over again, hoping that, you know, I'd have all the flexibility and the lean muscles that I wanted, et cetera, et cetera. So, so to extract what you're really saying is that variability, in fact, is one of the core components of resiliency. I, I actually, I'm interested in getting your take on this. I, I can't remember who it was. I think it was, oh man, I can't remember who it was, but I had somebody else on the show last year and we were talking about resiliency and he he was saying that compassion is also one of the cornerstones of resiliency and being able to be self-compassionate so i'm wondering if that plays into fitness and exercise in terms of in terms of rest in terms of making sure that we have the appropriate amount of you know mental health where we're not constantly beating ourselves up for incorrectly doing a workout or an exercise or reps like how do you see self-compassion play into this equation, if at all? So a lot to unpack with, with this. Um, I would say that when I'm thinking, because you mentioned uh, playing hockey at a very high level, and I would say that there's so many things that we choose to do in the modern world that are incongruent with what it meant to be a wild human. Mm -hmm. And I would say that uh, when it comes to, like, if I'm thinking about what I would do with a tremendously advanced athlete in any domain, their training becomes very invariable. Mm. They do have to do the same thing over and over again mm. to get a, and it's diminishing returns. You know, like once you're already extremely high in a, in a realm, 
you're not going to be able to get that much better. There's, there's not a, a, a whole lot left between where you are and where the ceiling is. But you almost have to be insane. You have to repeat the same action over and over again without seeing much change from it. But that's kind of the name of the game. Like, and and I, I think that grit, you know, if when I'm thinking about resiliency, like I think about variability and I also think about grit. And and grit is this combination, you know, Angela Duckworth's book, Grit, is, is fantastic. But this combo of uh, passion and perseverance, you know, like it ain't going to be easy. You got to keep showing up and you got to put more work in than anybody else on the specific thing that you want to get better at. Maybe, you know, when I'm, when I'm thinking of resilience, I'm thinking of uh, your ability to deal with stress. Mm. You know, like how do you buffer or cope with stress? And fitness seems to be a, a major, major realm in that. And I, I think from a sports science background as well, like I think of work by the Australian um, sports scientist, Tim Gabbett. He's, he's kind of the, the, one of the leaders in terms of trying to measure this stuff. And sometimes people think like, or I think that there's this in the, in the world of sports science and exercise science, there's people that think that a lot of people are overdoing it, so to speak. Too much, too much, too much. Gabbett would say you need to do more in a lot of ways by looking at the numbers. Like you need to train more, but you need to train smarter, you know? And his thing is this acute versus chronic load spike. So he will look at a four-week average of how much total physical work you've been doing. And the Aussies are big with they, – they started putting GPS devices on athletes, a lot of professional soccer, and then see how much you're actually running and what velocities you're actually running. They're able to track your, your load by running distance. And they would see, like, over the course of these week one, two, three, and four, you know, you have this imaginary number, 100 units of running – uh, is what you you had in week one, one ten in week two, and then all of a sudden we're looking at one hundred and sixty units in week three, and week three is probably the area where you're going to get injured because it's at this ratio, and at week four you're back to a hundred units. Week three, let's say it's this acute to chronic load spike uh, of all of a sudden you went to like one point five in this ratio of A to C versus the average of the four weeks, 160 units as compared to an average of 110 is just, it's, it's too much. Like you yeah. weren't, you weren't ready for it. Yeah. You're, you're kind of like compressed. I mean, that's going to take a huge toll on your joints, your, yeah. Yeah. Your cardiovascular system, the whole thing. Now, if you, you know, if you had built yourself up to it so that your average is 160 in units, it's no big deal. Right. You know what I mean? You just have to get yourself there. So I think uh, in, in many ways, like I'm a very objective person. Like I, I do love numbers ultimately. And I do think that most of this stuff is probably capable of being mapped out on a spreadsheet. And it's just that we don't know what to look at yet. Yeah. But once we can kind of figure that stuff out, we can look at it. But I, I do think ultimately like your tolerance in, in the same way that, that, you know, I think this makes sense to people that have drank alcohol before. You know, if if I were to take a kid from the country and they show up on their first week of college and I bring them out like you could you could realistically expect that kid to get like hammered off of like three beers. Mm -hmm. You know, they had never touched it before in their life. And the next day they wake up and they've got this enormous hangover. You know, if they keep going out two times a week for eight weeks. All of a sudden, six weeks later, those three beers don't do anything to them, yeah. you know, and they don't have any kind of hangover the next day. They've acquired a, a tolerance to it. Same thing with exercise. 
in, in many ways, you know, like uh, if I were to put someone that has taken two weeks off and is completely deconditioned, I just slam them with something like something really bad could happen. And the next day they wake up and they might not be able to get out of bed. Yeah. It's, it's really not that different from this kind of acute alcohol sort of, you know, same thing. And same thing. I could take this kid that had got hammered off of three beers time, time one, six week later, uh, three beers doesn't do anything to them, but then give them six weeks or six months off of drinking. And then the three beers might have a significant impact on that person. Same exact thing with exercise. So you can, you can really build yourself up. And I would just say like compassion in many ways to me is like real honesty, you know, like, so to speak with this exercise example, where are you right now? Like, do you accurately know where you are? I think in particular with men, because again, like I hear people all day talk about their relationship with exercise and I hear people, you know, once people find out what I do for work at like a barbecue or something like that, it's always, you hear their stories related to it. And it's like, you know, these, these like mythical stories of how much guys used to bench when they right. were so, <laughs> such and such years old. Right. And, uh, and then it's like, they think, and maybe they could, maybe they couldn't. But I think that in the back of most men's minds, they're still able to do what they were able to do then, Right. you know, and day one back in the gym, they just try to like do what they used to be able to do five years ago and they're not ready for it. Yeah. And so just like being honest with yourself about where you are right now, that to me is compassion, mm. you know, like really understanding and really being smart about things and acknowledging the fact that you like human beings can build themselves up to being able to do unbelievable physical things. And I think all of us in truth are capable of doing things that we didn't have any, like you don't think that you can do these things, but they're, they're within grasp. You just have to work towards them and do it intelligently over time and just use progression, you know? And, and before you know it, like eight months later, you're finding yourself able to do things that you never thought you were able to do. You just built yourself up to it. So I always look at it like you always have to do more. It just, where are you starting from? Don't try to kill yourself or do too much on day one be compassionate yeah i think i think just to like interject there i think that that really is when i look back on my sort of workout regiment and the times that i've been in the best shape of my life and then the times that i haven't been and then trying to get back in this shape right and get back into routine and a regiment etc I've always had the mentality, and I'm, I'm sure that you know, a lot of listeners can resonate with this, but I've always had the mentality of like, oh, I should just be able to do what I was doing where I left off, you know, on the bench, on the, you know, leg press, on the squats. I should just be able to pick it right back up, no problem. And, and that mentality has actually been this thing that has prevented me because the, part of my body is like, Hell no. Like you haven't been in the gym in a month. What the hell are you talking about? And so there's natural resistance that, that my mind and my body are going through around, around doing that. However, the times where I've said, you know what, I'm just going to go do a simple workout and whatever I can do, I'm going to do. And I go do that. And I'm, and I'm able to actually push myself a little bit farther than I, than I thought that I was going to be able to. And then I feel better about it. And then it sends me on this upward spiral, on this upward path of of reinforcing 
the the like positive behaviors. And I'm assuming, kind of tying this back into what you're talking about before with dopamine, that that actually has something to do with it. That that healthy attitude of incremental steps is producing a dopamine response in my body that is actually allowing me to continue forward. So, can you maybe just touch on the the effects of of training? To I don't know I don't know how to even approach this question really, but but training in such a way that that it it produces positive dopamine responses in the brain. This is my world yeah. more than anything, and you know I would just say to kind of like finish the thought we we just had about uh, losing ability or, or you know what I mean like uh, how quickly your fitness levels go. Like it's really interesting if you just look at like the NBA for instance about when guys get hurt. The biggest injury risk time is right after the All-Star game. And the reason for that is because guys were playing consistently. They're running a lot consistently. And then all of a sudden the All-Star game comes up and they've got like five, six, seven days off. And they don't, most of these guys shut it down or go out to the clubs and like have a really good time. (laughs) And then the All-Star break is over and they're right back into the grind again. And it's amazing how fast their fitness goes, even at the most elite. Because, I mean, NBA players are maybe the most elite athletes in all of professional sports. I mean, you talk about a select group of just, like, freakishly athletic humans. Uh, And so you see these, you know, all of a sudden you have this load spike over what you were doing before. And those load spikes are are the most predictive thing of what's going to take you out and set you back. And, um, you know, but getting back to kind of like, you know, like the, the regular kind of guy and like starting an exercise regimen and pursuing it and getting real results from it, you know, day one is a baseline and who gives it like so many people put so much pressure on themselves on day one. Like, I don't give a crap about day one other than the fact that you showed up and you did something and you tried. That's it. If you if you check those boxes off, show up, do something, try and and set a baseline for whatever activity activity it is that you're going to do. The next time that you show up and it shouldn't be two weeks later, you know what I mean? You got to do this stuff a few times a week minimum. You know, I can't tell you how many people show up to work with me and they're like, yeah, I'm going to work with you once a week. And I'm like, don't bother. Not it's going to waste your time and money. It's going to waste my time. Uh, you're probably going to get terrible results and tell everybody that you worked with me and you got awful results working with me. Like, I don't need that as a referral source in the, in the negative direction. Like you gotta, you gotta be deliberate about this stuff and you gotta do it. You know, I would say minimum. I don't see anybody get any kind of results unless they're three times a week minimum, but you need to go in a direction. You need a trajectory. And that means that the second time you show up, we're going to beat the first time. And that's incredibly rewarding. You know, I think that there's so many parts in life where you try hard, you know, work, for instance, I I go to work, I show up to work, I try hard, I put in everything I've got, and I don't necessarily get this direct return on investment. You know, my boss didn't give me a promotion, you know, whatever, whatever that might be, but there's not this linear return on investment. I put more in and I see immediately something come back for it. With fitness, that should happen. If you come in and you try hard and you follow the plan appropriately, you'll get a return on that. You know, it's just that you have to follow a plan that's actually progressive in nature. It means that you have to do a little bit more the next time than you did the first time. And when you see yourself beat your previous performance, 
that's an amazingly motivational experience. You know, I, to me, dopamine, again, it's this chemical of reward. And in some ways, it's almost as, as like binary as like dopamine, good, serotonin, bad from the perspective of like doing more of something. But progress is the biggest piece of ad adherence that of anything that you could possibly find. Adherence is the king variable in terms of nutrition, diet, and also exercise. If you adhere to a program, it will work. There's a million diets that work, you know, low carb, high carb, blah, blah, blah. Everything can work if you're consciously manipulating food. And there's a million ways that exercise can work as long as you're adhering to a program that is progressive in nature. The key to me, though, is you need to see results simultaneously. Why would you continue to adhere to a program that's not giving you any kind of results? So my job as a professional in exercise is to make sure that I design something for you that demonstrates improvement. So I always tell, and I, I, I teach seminars for other exercise professionals, I always say, if you're working with, with new clients, you need to target two variables, aerobic fitness and slow speed strength. And slow speed strength would be like doing Olympic style lifts is high speed strength or vertical jumping is high speed strength. Bench pressing, squatting, deadlifting is, is, is low speed strength. Those and the, and the reason that you go after aerobic fitness and low speed strength is they have the greatest percent change capabilities. Like you can improve your aerobic fitness from being a sedentary person to being an active person by such an incredible margin. It's ridiculous. And it also changes very fast. So I always say, like, listen, like people need to see themselves improve to be able to continue on with something. And they need to see themselves improve quickly because we live in kind of an ADHD culture and people are going to give up on things very quickly. You have to capture their interest. Uh, adherence will always win. The, but how do you get people to adhere to something they need to improve? Yeah, that's, the, that's like the million dollar question, right? But it really is, it really is just showing the sort of like, what, what's, the, what's the old English saying? The proof is in the pudding, right? Like you have to just be able to show them the result of the baking, of the making it, right? So, Especially with exercise because it's yeah. uncomfortable. Yeah. You have to put in effort. It's, it's tough stuff. But if, look, if exercise doesn't suck, it's a waste of time. Total yeah. waste of time. Yeah, and, and, and I think that that's the, that's the thing is that we're always seeking for like new ways to motivate ourselves to do something that inherently might not be the most like exciting thing or motivating thing because the motivation actually comes afterwards, right? That, that feel good feeling that we experience the dopamine hit actually comes after the, the exercise. So it's such a catch 22, uh, where I kind of want to end off. And one of the big conversations that I really wanted to have with you is this, is this concept around, and I've, you know, I've seen on your site, around uh stupid versus uh stupid versus effective exercise and i think that this is so important because a lot of the guys regardless of age regardless of you know where they're at physically or or mentally um i know for myself i have definitely done some stupid exercise you know where i've just kind of gone and done some random things that that weren't that really weren't connected uh, from a week to week basis and just hope that I would get in great shape just by doing some random things that I found on the internet and, and then didn't see the results. Right. 
And once I started to follow a, a sort of plan, like you were laying out before, and actually adhere to it, then I started to see the results. So I'm not too sure if that's a part of it, but I would love for you to unpack for us and for the listeners, how do you define stupid versus effective exercise? And then maybe we can talk about some of the ways that people can set up that effective exercise for themselves. Yeah, totally. So, you know, this is where I, I get myself in trouble all the time. <laughs> and I'm, I'm like, okay with it. But I would say that for the most part, the world of exercise and the professionals within the world of exercise, personal trainers, coaches, they're typically not the best and brightest amongst us. You know, the best and brightest amongst us go into medicine and physics and mathematics and chemistry and other fields where you have the potential to make a ton of money. And um, a lot of people that go into exercise are people that don't know what else to do with their lives in many ways. And, and that's a problem because I think that number one, there's, it's like the wild west in the world of exercise. And number two, there is, it's like the, the blind leading the deaf in some ways, <laughs> you know, it's, it's kind of like you have a lot of these fitness celebrities that don't have a solid basis of education and they just sling stuff out that literally makes no sense whatsoever. And there's no quality care in terms of products, you know, like people, the consumer has no idea what a good product is in exercise versus a bad product. I've worked at some of the most elite gyms, air quotes, in New York City, and I've seen people that are celebrities and billionaires working with trainers that don't know their ass from their elbows. And these are people that are, you know, the individuals who get the best of all things in life. Like if they're going to smoke a cigar, it's literally going to be the best cigar in the world. Like, if they're going to have a car, it's the best car that money can buy. Yacht, same thing. And, and it's easy, like, you, when you search, like, what's the best car that I could possibly buy? Like, you can figure that out. And, like, you know, if you see a Rolls Royce going down the street, like, you kind of know it's a Rolls Royce. Like, you get inside of it and you get a feel for it. And you're like, oh, my God, this is totally different from, like, a Honda Fit. Uh, when it comes to, I love, I love the comparison, by the way, the Rolls Royce to the Honda fit. <laughs> yeah. Like, you know, it, but like when it comes to exercise, I think people have no idea what they actually, what a good product is versus a bad product in some ways. I, mean, I think it's just to your point, just to kind of expand on this, like there isn't necessarily a great standard, like a gold standard for a great personal trainer. Uh, or, or even for a great personal trainer's product, right? And we live in this area where I could literally, having no background in this whatsoever, I could over the next course of the next six months totally change my platform, right? I'm just kind of like thinking about your 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 uh, your process here, but I could I could totally change my platform, start taking a whole bunch of pictures with my shirt off, yep. saying that I followed this plan. I could put on some muscle, and I could claim to be. Uh, this really great like fitness guy and I can start selling programs for 200 or you know whatever it is and I can start getting clients and doing physical training not having any background whatsoever in that field and then you've got you know men and women like yourself who actually have degrees in this and and so okay so I just wanted to, I just wanted to interject and say that because social media is like just a beast for this that's kind of like basically people that do really well in personal training in New York City from what I can see are a either really good looking humans, you know, they just won the genetic jackpot or B 
are just really cool humans. Like they're just so much fun to be around that you can't help it. You just love being around this person. And some people have this double hitter, you know what I mean? And they're just like, but I see what these people do with clients from an exercise perspective. And it's like, oh my God, (laughs) this makes no sense. So, um, you know, like it's just super hard. It's super hard for consumers to know what a good product is at this point in time. I am always trying to tell trainers or strength coaches that I work with at seminars or in, in any kind of educational setting that like, number one, we need to be categorical thinkers. Okay. So there, there needs to, you need to define what the different things are that you can do with a human being from a fitness perspective. And, you know, I mean, I've got like a two day seminar that I teach on, on all of the different categories and how to develop these categories. Um, and it goes, it's probably beyond the, 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 the scope of what this interview can be, but I need to have frameworks that I work inside for structuring training sessions, training weeks, training months and training years. And, um, I should be able to explain that to the client and, and demonstrate to them how I'm going to take them from where they are right now to where their vision ultimately leads them. And for the most part, like, you know, you use the center of this question is regarding uh, stupid exercise versus useful exercise. And, and I would say that for the most part, uh, stupid exercise are things that are overly complex. And there's a lot of moving pieces with these things. Like to me, it's like the BOSU ball somehow got involved. Uh, you know, TRX straps are somehow involved. You know, there's, there's like a balance challenge that's somehow involved. So like basics done at a very high level in a progressive manner is always the thing that's going to work. So, you know, I have just like in the way that I define exercise, I start with fundamental movement patterns that should be done in the gym. And I've got 12 that I go with. I have locomotion, which, you know, generally is going to be running, but you know, it could also involve like heavy carries, farmer's walk, yoke carries, sandbag carries, things of that nature. Change of direction, which could be speed and agility work. Triple extension, which is generally jumping or doing Olympic style lifts. Uh, hip dominant exercises, which involve deadlifting for the most part. Knee dominant exercises, which are revolving around the squat pattern. Uh, horizontal pushing, bench pressing push-ups. Horizontal pulling, rowing, uh, vertical pushing, overhead pressing, military pressing, uh, or for most people, from what I see, most people just an incline press for their shoulder health is probably a better choice. Vertical pulling, pull-ups and, and lat pull-downs. Then you get into the realm of like core exercises, uh, core exercises that target the pelvis and core exercises that tar- target the rib cage. And, and the last one, throwing, and oftentimes that involves medicine balls. But I, I have those categories as far as trainable movement patterns. And to me, it's like I need to select the tool that's the best choice for each individual person from those categories. And that depends on your fitness level at this point in time. So, you know, as an example, like, uh, like the knee dominant or the squat pattern, uh, for, for most people coming in, like I train that pattern with a couple different stances, one where the feet are next to each other. Uh, bilaterally, and that would be your traditional barbell squat or something like that. But 
most people coming in on day one can't do that exercise well. So I usually have them hold a kettlebell or a dumbbell in front of them for a goblet squat. And usually people are able to execute that and the pattern looks right, it feels right, and we can progress them from there. Or for instance, the, the, that pattern knee dominant also involves split squatting or lunging. And again, most people on day one aren't ready for a lunge going forward. It's too much velocity for them. Uh, they're going to be way too sore the next day. So I just keep them stationary and we split squat and they're usually holding dumbbells by their side. And I can progress that through a number of ways. I can elevate the rear foot. I can elevate the front foot. We can start lunging backwards. We can start lunging forward all in time, but I need to start in the right place. So I would say that like, if you're doing, if the first exercise of the day is an isolation movement, single joint thing, it's, you're probably working with someone that's unqualified. If like bicep curls is exercise one, you're, even if your goal is to get bigger arms, most men coming in, that's their, a goal that they could have. They don't have the well-rounded strength to make that effective at that point in time. Like be able to bench press 225 and squat 315. And now we can talk about arms. I guarantee that if you just, if you can get yourself up to a baseline point of squatting two plates uh, or, or benching two plates, squatting three plates, deadlifting four plates, arms are probably going to get bigger in that process. Like, let's get you to these baselines of big movement strength first. And now that you're strong enough, we can actually develop things like biceps. Uh, otherwise, you're too weak to literally grow those things yeah. to start off with. Um, but if I, I would almost invariably someone that's using a BOSU ball or a wobble disc or something that makes the ground unstable is clueless. Uh, you're probably taking what could be a good exercise and now reducing the stability to the point where you can no longer create enough force for it to be a good exercise. I would say a lot of like, this is almost my list of things that identify stupidity. If you're taking two exercises that could be good on their own and trying to combine them into one exercise, such as the step up to bicep curl or the lunge to bicep curl or something like that, you've taken two exercises that could be good exercises on their own and you've mashed them together to become zero good exercises. <laughs> like if you can bicep curl the weight that you can lunge, there's a problem. Like you should be able to lunge a hell of a lot more weight than you can curl. So by being able to curl that weight, you've made the lunge ineffective. By curling at the bottom of a lunge, you've made the curl ineffective. So these are just things that I see on a day in and day out basis. I also just think like for most people, you want to pick tools that are measurable. Like a barbell is super measurable. It's this much weight. You did it for this many reps. If we can increase the amount of weight for the same amount of reps, you made progress. If you can do more reps with the same amount of weight, you made progress. A TRX row, I don't know how much progress you made because it depends on the angle that you're at, where your feet are. There's too many moving pieces. Even machines are super great from the perspective of making progress. Treadmills, great from the perspective of making progress. You ran in the same amount of time at a higher velocity and you covered more distance. Something along those lines. I love things that you can measure and see yourself get better at. I don't like things that lack measurability in a gym. I see boxing all the time in the gym from trainers that have never boxed. And they're teaching this stuff with terrible mechanics. There's no ability to measure it, but people are sweaty, so they perceive it as a good workout. There's a difference between training and fun. You know what I mean? In some ways, training needs to have 
uh, a trajectory. It needs to have increases in your performance for you to adhere in the long run, according to all the science on neurotransmitters, dopamine, and and uh, compliance. So those are those are some of my big big hitters in, in terms of like things that drive me crazy, things that like are generally uh, red flags that the trainer is probably not super confident. Um, and it's just, I would say like, it's a disappointing industry. It's really hard to find someone that's actually qualified and the heuristics from the consumer are out of control because we can't help but liking people that are extremely good looking and we can't help but like people that are super cool and likable. Yeah, I was going to I was going to say like part of this and I'm curious to get your insight on this, but is part of this trainers sort of acquiescing to their client, you know, because I feel like there are so many people that are out there that are like, yeah, I want to get in shape, but they actually don't really want to do the work when it comes down to it. And so I, you know, I think what I've seen um, through some personal trainers is them just sort of giving up, you know, and being like, well, screw it. Like they don't want to do their work anyway. I know they don't want to put the work in. This is, they're going to pay me. So I'm just going to give them some exercises to do. They'll sweat a bunch. They'll lose a little bit of weight. And, and, you know, it's a win, quote unquote, win, win situation because they don't actually want to push them to do the work that's necessary to, to get even better results than they think is possible. So how, how much of it do you see personal trainers just catering to, to clientele that, that aren't really all in? I think it's a little combo of both. Like in one, for one, I would be a liar if I said that I didn't just give up on some people and collect a paycheck from some people. Yeah. You know, there's women that I've worked with who, you know, clearly need to lift weights and they don't want to because they're terrified they're going to turn into Arnold Schwarzenegger on day one from lifting (laughs) like 10 pounds on an incline bench. And it's like, there's no, you can't reason with them. You're, you're trying to use a cognitive reasoning brain to talk to someone that's purely in like a limbic emotional brain yeah. and the limbic emotional brain always wins. And so it's like, oh, fine, I'll stand here as you're on the elliptical and we kind of like go through the motions on this thing. And then you go do abs and stretch in the corner because better me to collect this money than somebody else at a certain point. Like no one's going to get you to do anything different from what you're doing. You're blocking that process. You're not listening to anyone. So fine. Like if that's the deal, I'm not going to become emotionally invested in this. Like I got to pay rent, you know? And, and like, that's, that's part of the, the, the under, you know, like the honesty of like working in my profession, like in every profession has similar. I feel like, I feel like it's like that in, in, you know, therapy and psychology. I feel like some therapists and some psychologists and whatnot, they, you know, they'll, they'll see clients that have been through dozens of therapists throughout their lifetime and, and are still dealing with the same thing. And, and it, and it's in, and it's interesting because I think sometimes the approach is, you know, because we're in these industries for a long time, sometimes the approach is just like curated to not to that individual, but just to, to that sort of like subset of, of personality that is there going through the motions, but isn't really there to do the work, yeah. you know? So do you see do you see that having a bigger negative impact on the industry though because it sounds like a lot of these exercises are now just sort of being put out there in a way to make people feel like they are doing more work 
than is actually happening. I'd say to kind of finish the the first thought, you know, I, I think that it's this it's this combo of of some people that become clients of trainers. They dictate what the session's going to be. Every trainer hates that. You know, like I wouldn't show up to the mechanic and tell them how to fix the car, but it happens because we all own our bodies to some degree. Um, but two, I see plenty of trainers that just do the same crazy mindless stuff with every client all day. Right. And it's like, can somebody explain the rationale behind this? Like, that's insanity. Like, what what are you doing with this activity? Like, I, again, it's sort of like with social media. And um, it's funny how things haven't changed that much over time. Like, literally the same kind of advertising techniques that were used in, like, infomercials, like, 10, 15 years ago are still kind of getting rolled out and, like, you know, I feel like if you want to make money in social media with fitness products, like there's like this formulaic approach, like start with like scaring men in regards to like these things are going to reduce testosterone layer levels, right? You know, fill in the blank, like these five exercises are testosterone threats and or these five food groups are going to threaten testosterone. So it's like start with testosterone and belly fat, like, you know, scare like, oh, look at this guy. It's going to be a black and white image of like a video of like a guy with a lot of belly fat that looks lethargic. And like, then all of a sudden pan to in color, some dude that's ripped and like talk about (laughs) testosterone levels. It's literally the same ad over and over again. Like do these things to reduce belly fat and to build testosterone, Uh, avoid these things and like pan back to the guy that's like sweaty and lethargic, black and white, like, belly fat and low testosterone levels. And it's, it's always like these junk things, you know what I mean? Like do these three body weight techniques to reduce belly fat and build testosterone. Um, and it's like, those things don't make any sense. Like, you know, you're literally just picking out this one dude that like looks good for this one day. And I, like, I've worked in this city with plenty of dudes that are like the men's health models. You know what I mean? And they don't look that way every day. They look that way for one day that they've dieted and trained for for six months to be absolutely shredded. And then the next day after they've eaten like, you know, three dozen donuts, they don't look like that anymore because it's unsustainable. It's not healthy. And it's creating like social media is causing this such a warped perspective on, on healthy body images for men. Like, you know, for a long time, people have talked about women's body image issues and how like advertisements are causing problems, but it's that it's the same thing for men at this point. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's such an interesting convo and I didn't expect it to go here. And and so maybe we'll just finish off there because I, I do think that it's a, it's a important topic. And I think that body image for men is something like, I remember being a kid, you know, being like a teenager in high school and, and being so conscious of my body. I wasn't in bad shape by any means. You know, as a hockey player, I was fit, but I had some belly fat and I was so conscious about that. And that is, that always has sort of stuck with me, you know, throughout life. And, and it's something that I've had to personally overcome. And I think that a lot of guys have overcome, you know, being at the lake with buddies, like, you know, that won't, wouldn't take their shirts off or, so I, I think it's a very real thing for a lot of guys. And I think that our you know, that the sort of quote unquote men's health industry is, is more of a proponent of 
pushing those things forward, like sort of em, uh, embellishing those things and making guys more self-conscious, you know, it doesn't mean that we should have dad bods, but, but at the same time, by, at the same time, I think what, what ends up happening, I know I fall and pray to this, so I'm just going to speak to that personally, but I know I fall and pray to this mentality that, well, if I'm going to l- work out, then I better get to a point where I look like the guy in the front of Men's Health magazine. Because if I don't get there, then what the hell is the point? Why am I doing this? And, and that's, that actually is missing the point. And I think I've come to a place over the last couple of years where I was like, oh, I, just, I actually I want to feel good when I look in the mirror. I want to feel good when I wake up in the morning. I want to feel good when I'm benching, when I'm squatting. Like I want to feel good when I'm doing these things. I want to feel strong and healthy and, and confident about them. And it actually has fundamentally shifted the way that I go about working out. Because before I was working out to impress other people and this like necessity to look good. And now I work out to actually feel good about myself, not, not for like some validation or needing to look like some, you know, magazine cover, which is, it even it sounds absurd for me to say that like that, that was a thing for me. Um, so what, what's your take on, what's your take on that? And sort of like this body image thing that a lot of guys are facing. So, and again, like I'm familiar with, with some of the people that are the individuals that you're looking at on this stuff. Yeah. <laughs> people have no idea how much is involved with performance enhancing drugs. You know what I mean? Like it's, it's something that people don't talk about enough. A lot, like a lot of people that work and to and put their body in front of cameras for fitness-based modeling. There's a lot of drugs involved in that population. You know, you're looking at guys that are not natural. If you're going to be like well over 200 pounds and ripped, there's usually drugs involved. You know, and it's it's like it's more pervasive than what people think. So it's like you're comparing yourself to the impossible. And, um, you know, I always try to tell guys this other piece too. If you look into the, there's research on what females find attractive in terms of men with their shirts off. And it's somewhere between like 12 and 15% body fat. It seems to be optimal. So I always tell guys like, listen, like, do you really notice women's nails and shoes or like, you know, like not really women are obsessed with those things. They're doing it for other women. They might think that we're noticing that stuff. I don't, I don't really notice mo- much in the way of, of a lot of these little accessory pieces that women spend a tremendous amount of time obsessing over. Getting body fat down to these levels of like sub 10%, it's going to cost you a lot of things, okay? You're not going to be able to hang out with people and do some of the things that you want to do uh, with your life. Like if you want to, you know, you're not going to be able to eat all the things you want. You're not going to be able to go out and like have, have beers with your friends. You're going to have to sacrifice a lot of social elements. You're, you're going to give up a tremendous amount for this thing that you're after that in many ways, the only people that are going to notice it, it's probably just going to be you quite honestly, maybe a couple of other dudes, but most women it's not going to change the way that they view you in any way, shape, or form. You're literally slapping like fancy nails on is, is what it's the equivalent of, of doing. So again, like uh, I think that for most, most people come to personal trainers because they have aesthetic-based goals. And then it's like I've worked with plenty of people where we've reached those goals. And they're never, the, the person that I'm working with never feels like they reached the goal. 
And I think in large part, what I've learned is that this is a person coming to me because they're inherently and fundamentally not happy with themselves. And they're taking it out on their aesthetics. They're picking that for some reason. And it's kind of like at a certain point, you have to either like yourself or not like yourself. And, you know, I think you're just better off liking yourself, coming to grips and accepting yourself for, for who you are as a person. And to me, there's much better uh, training goals as compared to aesthetics. I think that numbers are much more fun to train for because they're much more tangible too in a lot of ways. You know, like your perception of how you look, like you might look a lot better. I'll even, I'll even get this with a lot of clients. They clearly look better now, but they have some weird memory of how they looked eight years ago, something like that. And it's kind of like, hey, why don't you get out pictures of yourself from eight years ago? And let's actually take a look at them. And they look at them and they're like, I look better now. That's so weird. But even after this, they'll continue to go back to, I remember when I looked so good. And it's like, we just hold on to these weird kinds of memories. Yeah. Um, So it's, it's aesthetics is so ambiguous and such a bad goal. Like, because I'm telling you, like nobody ever looks the way that they want to look when they, when they have this perception of that, they want to look different. Well, that's it's Yeah. It's more of a distortion, right? It's like, you're looking through a distortion rather than the lens of true perception because you're looking through how, how you want to be. It's funny. Like I, I did the, not the exact same thing, but I remember when I wanted to get in shape like four years ago and I started working back out and I got on a regimen and the whole thing and I started losing some weight and I had made a whole bunch of progress and I was tracking things with metrics and I was seeing results from a metric standpoint. But when I looked in the mirror, I was like, ah, I don't think I look any better. And I found a picture of myself from a time when I thought I was in amazing shape and I'd gone to Italy with my family and I was like 21. And I, you know, at the time I'd been working out a bunch, I'd been working construction. So I was like, you know, I was very strong at that time because of what I've been doing, but I also ate like shit. And so I I found this picture of myself and I looked at it like, you know, of course I've got good size. I'm bulked out, but I got this big gut, you know, because I had been drinking too much during that time. And I was like, oh shit, like. I don't, I look way better now, you know, way better. I was like, oh, this is so, this is so strange. So it's, it's so true that, that we often have this distorted perception of what we used to look like at that one time, uh, than, than we do now, because it, it kind of like steals us away from the work that we're doing. It's, it's like this sabotage mechanism that steals us away from the present moment of actually enjoying the fruits of our labor and actually everything that we've put in there. Yeah. There's such a disconnect between like the remembering self and the experiencing self. They're not the same individual inside your head. They're separate modules in our brain. And uh, that sometimes that remembering self is just completely out of his mind. Yeah. You know, like, I'm like, (laughs) really, that's what you remembered about that experience? Like, because I was watching you go through that and it wasn't anything like that. And like, I remember what you looked like at that point. And it's nothing like what you're recounting right now. Like you're don't trust your experiencing self right now or your remembering self. Like let's just switch modes and get out of that guy. So it's, I mean, I, I wouldn't believe it, but I've seen it so many times now that it's like, it's, it's incredible. 
Well, listen, Pat, this is, this has been an incredible conversation and, you know, I feel like we could dive into so many different aspects and regimens and routines and, you know, specific biometrics and, and, you know, how to actually go about different form and postures and stuff like that. But, you know, I feel like with some of those things, it's almost beneficial to have video. And, uh, you know, I know that you've, you've put together a, a really great course. Uh, one of my, one of the reasons why we're even connected is, a good friend of mine here in New York who I have worked out with a couple of times has just raved about you. And uh, so it's been an honor to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much. Thank you, Connor. And uh, so for everybody that's that's out there listening, definitely uh, check out Pat's website. We'll have the links in the bio for you. Uh, you can check out some of his program and blog posts and some of the work. I, mean, I think that, you, you know, you've got some uh, talks online. Is that is that right? Yeah. So you can check out some of his talks online to go dig a little bit deeper into the work that he does you enjoyed our conversation today. Don't forget to man it forward. Share this podcast episode with someone who you think would love to hear it, would benefit from listening to it uh, if they are on the journey of self-discovery, fitness, health, and effective exercise. Uh, and uh, don't forget to subscribe. Leave us a rating and review no matter what platform you're tuning into, whether it's iTunes or Spotify or Stitcher. And until next week, this is Connor Beaton signing off. Join me next week for another inspiring conversation with another inspiring individual. Thank you.